The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife. Save the environment. Save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Today we have a very special special guest, one of my favorite authors and storytellers, William Stolzenberg. He wrote Where the Wild Things Were and Rat Island and is currently working on a book about our uh, great uh, mega predator, the American Lion, also known as the Cougar. Will has been heralding our planet's sixth mass extinction while celebrating its survivors where they can still be found. After 15 years as science editor of Nature Conservancy magazine, Will chose to pursue the most captivating story of all, our awakening science to the critical role of Earth's great predators in sustaining the diversity of life and their ongoing disappearance from every corner of the biosphere. For the past 20 years, Will has been covering the beat called conservation biology with a wit and scope that it is mind-boggling in its magnitude, portraying the losses of nature's grandest spectacles against the increasing destruction of our ecosystems. Today, our story revolves around the heroic journey of one cat that apparently walked and swam from the Black Hills of South Dakota to the green estates of Greenwich, Connecticut, looking for love. And the story today that Will and I will be talking about is what the uh, re-emergence or repatriation, if there is such a thing happening, of Americans, America's great lion and what that means for us today. Welcome, Will. I am ready to hear your stories. Thanks very much, Yelly. It's uh, great to be here. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here. Uh, once again, we were talking a little bit earlier. I read Where the Wild Things Were in 2008. I probably bought 20 copies to give it away to friends. Bless um, you. <laughs> so at least I support your work. It was such, um, in the work I do, I've been doing wildlife conservation for 30 years. Um, my main focus is now Africa. But your book really opened up the scope of what is going on as opposed to being involved in the 
I'm going to call it the tiny world I had been involved in up to that point, working directly with people and finding ways to live with wildlife. But in reading where the wild things were, it really put the big picture together. So I have, of course, since talking to you, um, uh, gotten Rat Island, and the, the sound of that sounds fabulous. So I can't wait to dig into that one. But today we're going to talk about this this lion. You used to live in Boulder, and uh, we have some lions there. We have some lions up here, and now you live on the East Coast. So uh, why don't we start by you giving us a little bit of background and how you came into being so involved and focused on this particular subject, uh, our sixth mass extinction. Well, a couple of questions there, I guess. There's the, there's the, the extinction, and then there's the lion. But like I say, I, I, you know, I, I started off as a kind of a science writer, editor, and, and got uh, very quickly into conservation because I'd always been interested in animals. And, of course, in this day and age, you inevitably wind up, if you're at all interested in animals, with their conservation because everywhere you look, they seem to be disappearing so, um, yeah, I started off and decided I, I, I wanted to learn about animals, and then soon I transitioned into writing about the animals and became, with a very, very uh, good stroke of fortune, I became the uh, science editor for Nature Conservancy magazine, whose mission is to basically save all of the diversity of life on Earth, and they don't have a, a big predator focus. They're into everything. So I got the opportunity to write on all all forms of animals, um, but you know, I've always had this this uh, this inclination for the big predators, the charismatic megafauna, if you will. And so, um, during one of my uh, reporting episodes uh, at the Nature Conservancy, I was attending a conference, and I I write a little bit about this in the prologue of my book, where the wild things were. I was basically covering the whole range of conservation biology issues at this huge conference, and my the way I usually go about it is I scamper around helter and skelter trying to, you know, cover the entire conference as only one can and needing about 10 different clones. But I uh, found myself in this conference that was dealing with the, the ecological role of the top-down role of big predators in the landscape. I was just captivated. And I came away with, a, you know, half a dozen ideas for stories, but uh, eventually I ended up writing about some of them in Nature Conservancy magazine. And that kind of led to uh, the, the discovery that this was indeed something that uh, was just up and coming. The science was just now beginning to to come online and and, and uh, come together. Whereas you know, for the last thirty or forty years, it had been just kind of creeping in. And all of a sudden, there was this kind of a groundswell of support for this idea that uh, not only were these big predators missing in many parts of the globe, but they were urgently needed and and they were missed. They were sorely missed as parts of the ecosystem. And it just so happened that I couldn't quite do both things, which was continuing as, as my role as uh, science editor for Nature Conservancy magazine and write on this subject that I, as I thought it needed to be written about. So I, I went off and, you know, with, with really <laughs> not a lot of good reason for doing so, I, I went off and decided I was going to write a book about this. And lo and behold, it, it happened. But it was, it was a great experience, a great adventure in learning uh, about this new science of, of top-down ecology. So um, I'd say since the writing of Where the Wild Things Were, uh, hopefully you have found out just how much it has, it is needed. That, um, and this conference, this was quite some time back. So you were mentioning, you know, emerging sciences. Uh, 
this really is true. It's only been in the last, I'm going to say, 30, 20, 30 years that we've really, that science and technology have caught up to us to the point that we can understand these losses. So when you say the predators that went missing, that's a really nice understated euphemism for, let's call it, let's get a little serious, more like extirpation um, uh-huh. at, at the hands of man and, you know, losses due to loss of habitat. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, it, it almost goes without saying, and I sometimes forget that I'm just so steeped in this, I always assume that people understand that that is the major factor for why we don't have many of our big cats and our wolves and the killer whales in the sea and the big sharks. It's why, you know, we, we are lacking in so many places uh, these top predators. It's because basically we we have kind of have this love-hate relationship with them. We do. We do you know, we love to watch them on TV, but in in the real world, we haven't had a very good record of wanting to coexist with them. And so, in in so many cases around the world, it's exactly as you've mentioned. It's it's a loss of habitat, habitat degradation, and then the direct killing of them. We just seem to love, as in general as a society, we love to we love to kill these animals. And I could go on that for hours. You know, there is so much happening today, just as an example, in terms of the sport trophy hunting industry, the recent um, auction off of a permit to kill a black rhino in Namibia, and the whole emotional and um, animal welfare, animal rights, animal um, deserving of the animal mind we could go on that for a whole long time and uh, had a discussion with mark beckoff a couple of weeks ago about that so keeping uh, our listeners are aware of the background i don't i will isn't as aware of my background but this is the whole point of our wild world is to help our listeners understand that at our hands we do have the choice to live with or as we've been going about doing live without these predators and what will here can help us understand today is what the and i'm going to use a quote from uh, one of your books the ecological collapse the uh the cascade of consequences biologically and through our biosphere and diversity of when we lose these predators. So um, what I first suggest for our listeners is to go out, whether it's on your Kindle or at your local bookstore or your library, and go pick up where the wild things were. It starts out with a little history and starfish, and yes, it's it's a little difficult to get through, but stick with it because by the time you get you know, maybe a hundred pages into this book, you are hooked. It it is a thriller. It is a mystery. It is um, a true story of what is happening to the world at our hands. So um, let's talk a little bit about. So, in order to write this book, you you physically go to these conferences, and in order to write where the wild things were and where um, and and the one that you're currently working on about cougars. Um, you have to go places. You have to be pretty physical to get into and um, visit these places. You you have a very interesting, active lifestyle, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I it, it's it's not high, well, yeah, I, I wouldn't call it high adventure, um, but, you know, it, it, it is fun tagging along. I, I like to tag along behind the great scientists and their natural habitat, the places that they've done their studies, and so I often don't, I, sometimes I, I, I underestimate exactly where I am. I mean, for example, in the recent book, Red Island, I ended up um, in the Aleutians. I ended up 1,100 miles west 
of the coast of Alaska in this tiny island out there covering that book. And yeah, it takes, that's the great thing about covering the science of wildlife is that, you know, you go to where, if you're going to do it right, you go to where the wildlife is. And yeah, I, um, as I say, I was out in the, in the middle of the, uh, uh, Bering Sea covering, uh, the Rat Island and we went out to, um, uh, the coast of Washington, beautiful coast of Washington and Macaw Bay where, uh, I went to visit with the, the very scientist who was one of the, the very first people to start, uh, alerting, uh, the rest of the scientific community to this idea that the big predators or at least the top predators in an ecosystem can have, uh, enormous, uh, disproportionate impacts on the ecosystem beneath them. Well, isn't that why we call them keystone species? We not only have apex predators, which are at the top of their food chain within their ecosystem, but then within that we have keystone species, which is not always a predator. An elephant is a keystone species. A wolf is a keystone species. And it looks like the mountain lion is coming close to being a keystone species without its companion, the wolf. So if you're interested, listeners, in hearing a great interview uh, about Rat Island, if you're not uh, rushing out right now to go order the book, you can find uh, Will and uh this interview on NPR. It does stream online. It's a great interview and it's about Will's discoveries on Rat Island. So through your work, Will, from where the wild things were and everything that you encompassed and learned, I mean, that it's a massive amount of knowledge. That's why I strongly urge people to read it because it ties together and that's the point of what I try to do here is connect the dots um, conservation isn't linear it's and what you had just said follow along with the scientists who are doing the work um, I'd say the clarion call of what's been going on the losses has been happening for a really long time and the science is out there but it's not put together where the layperson can find it in an in an uh, a manageable, and I'm not. I'm going to use the word easy, but I mean easy in the sense that it's not bogged down by too many scientific terms where you lose or disengage the reader. Will's writing is a story, and it's a storytelling, and it's a fantastic story of what's happening in our world. So you came along an article about this one lion looking for love. We struggled on how to title this this episode and I still love, you know, looking for love in all the right places. So, and what I mean by that is that this lion was doing what she needed to do to find a mate, but it happens to be all the wrong places for us. So, give us a little background about this lion that intrigued you so and how you went about um following her and following her story. Yeah, the, the line we're talking about is actually was a, was a young male who um, we believe, and this, this, is, this is part of the detective story that is so fun to follow, we believe that this animal took off from the Black Hills of South Dakota somewhere around perhaps the summer of 2009. Uh, and I'll just back up a little bit and tell you how I, I learned about this animal. Uh, sometime after publishing Where the Wild Things Were, I was approached um, by an organization called the Cougar Rewilding Foundation, who are now in the process of trying to help the uh, cougars return to their native range, which is basically the entirety of the North American continent. Um, uh, uh, they used to be all the way to the eastern coast, and they were, along with wolves and bears, uh, grizzly bears, that is, were, were wiped out and for 
perhaps half of the uh, half of the country, and were left to pretty much uh, limited to the Rocky Mountains of the West. Now, um, so there's a lot of people who would like to like to imagine, uh, given some of the science that's out there that says, you know, we're, it's not just a matter of these things missing, but they are sorely missed. Okay, they they are uh, essential parts of the ecosystem, and so there are some there are certain people who would are lobbying and advocating very hard to bring these animals back. And they, they asked me into their circle to, you know, discuss things with them and, and uh, you know, talk about these issues. And so I started getting a lot of the, the emails, a lot of the feeds, a lot of the news on cougars. And so I started to learn more than I ever had with the Wild Things book. And one of the big issues is always, and it has been now for the past couple of decades, is that we start seeing, as I said, these, these animals have been wiped clean from the uh, from east of the Rockies, everywhere except for this tiny population in the south of Florida. You've probably heard of the Florida panther. There's about okay. 100, 150 of them still surviving there. Elsewhere, uh, we have a lot of these reports, a lot of myths, a lot of legends, but there just isn't any evidence for breeding uh, cougars east of the Rockies. So um, whenever they do start making these forays east into the plains, it becomes big news, especially for people who are looking for these animals to return, especially, especially for people who would not like to see these animals return. There's a big conflict going on there. So, but anyway, some of these, these uh, trips, these dispersals from some of these animals coming east from the Rockies have been quite magnificent. Uh, they, they tracked one all the way into Manitoba. They tracked one all the way into Oklahoma. Uh, the problem with a lot of these animals, just about every one of them, is they, they get so far and then they get shot or they just disappear. And, the, you know, the idea is that probably what's happened to them is the is the old three S, you know, the shoot, shovel and shut up sort of thing. So um, we in um, uh, the conservation or the, the cougar community got news. And, and in fact, the world did pretty soon after it happened, got news. And this was in June of 2011 of a cougar being killed in uh, outside of it's, it's actually Milford, Connecticut, which is just a ways down the road from Greenwich and said, holy moly. And everyone starts thinking, well, this is this has got to be a domestic animal. You know, there's because a lot of people own mountain lions. That's another big, uh, well-kept secret. A lot of people in this country own mountain lions as pets. A lot of times what happens when the animal gets big enough, they realize what they really have on their hands they let them go some places. And so occasionally you do have animals wandering around out there, mountain lions, a lot of them declawed. And, um, you know, they are, they, they account for most of the, the sightings that we see in the East. So that's what everyone thought. Well, we're going to look at this animal. We're going to see that its claws have been removed. It's, it's pads will be all scuffed up. It'll look like it's been living in a, in a concrete cage. Its teeth will be worn down. Well, none of that happened. This animal did not pass or flunk any of the tests of being a truly wild animal. And then, in fact, they took the animal's DNA and matched it up and found that this animal had indeed come from, as best as they can tell, from the Black Hills of South Dakota. And uh, that, that immediately just raised all the eyebrows across the land made made world news uh, it was international and that's when i said you know i, I i've got to learn about this animal's journey and so uh i i set off 
Well, on that note, we're going to take a little break. So I want our audience to stick with us because now we're going to get into the meat, so to speak, of how Will goes about finding and discovering and a little bit more about what's happening to our greatest cat, the American lion, the cougar, the puma, puma concolor, one of the cats with the most names ever. And stick with us. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G Streaming live The leader in internet talk radio VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World We want to hear from you Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788 That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. We're with author of Where the Wild Things Were and Rat Island, William Stolzenberg. And uh, we're getting a little sneak peek at his latest investigation and following mountain lions. So if you were with us before the break, it, his interest was piqued uh, by a mountain lion that was determined to have come from the Black Hills and happened managed to make it all the way to Connecticut before being killed. So that brings up... A question, you know, in our heartlands and between the heartlands and the urban bunny huggers where we have these emotional knee-jerk reactions of do not kill any predator. We love them. We want them all, as you had said earlier. Um, what is it that gets cougars into so much trouble with us? Why is it that there is such a gauntlet, in your words, that these cougars have to run from uh, their original come back from Mexico into California. How did they get from California to the Rockies? Or did they not make it that way and get from Mexico? I mean, where are they coming up from? And why is it so hard for us to live with them? Well, um, the first part of the question, where are they coming from? They, uh, 
they were driven from the east um, across the Midwest and basically depleted from the eastern half of the United States. And they hold up in places like California and the Rockies. So it wasn't like they got holed into a corner in, in California or Mexico. They were always, uh, they always survived, but in small numbers, places that people basically couldn't get to during the uh, predator extermination campaigns of the early late 1800s, early 1900s. These were the ones that took out all the wolves and the grizzlies for most of the lower 48. Uh, but the mountain lion had one advantage. The mountain lion uh, could go places that, that uh, a lot of these hunters couldn't get to. It was just too hard, too difficult, too much time. They didn't come to poison as easily either. They didn't come to uh, carcasses, which were often one of the best ways for killing uh, lots of carnivores that, as they used to do in the old time. They would just inject a lot of strychnine or some other agent into a carcass and just wait for everyone to come in. And, and wolves were certainly susceptible to that. Um, they also, they don't form packs. You know, the wolves are a lot more uh, identifiable by their packs. You can track them down. So yeah, they had some advantages. So they, 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 they did maintain, but in smaller numbers. And so what we've been seeing over the last few decades and what we think we're seeing anyway, because it's, I have to say it's a, it's, it's a terribly difficult task to count mountain lions okay so these are all rough guesstimates of of what we actually have out there but the fact that people started seeing them more often maybe the fact that there's more people out in the woods who knows but uh it was determined that they had made a a, a comeback if you will kind of refilling in a lot of the ranges that they've been shot out of uh throughout the rockies and that was one of the reasons they thought that maybe having uh saturated their habitat back in the rockies is when they started making these forays east one of which these places was the Black Hills, which is an eastern outlier of the Rockies. And now we're talking about these animals getting across the Great Plains and with not very much success. Now, the second part of that question is, you know, why do we why do we want to kill the animals? Well, you know, a lot of that has to do with history. You know, we have a bad history with this animal. Uh, a lot of it uh, comes from misunderstanding when the when the settlers first arrived in North America, you know, they came with these ideas that this was a very scary land full of demons and beasts. And the wolves and the mountain lions were seen that way. And they were just killed out of hand as, as, a, as a measure of, of safety for, you know, uh, making inroads into this new wilderness of theirs. But unfortunately, a lot of these attitudes have kind of held on, even though we have better information now to know that they are not the big danger. They're not going to be you know, uh, wiping out humanity or all the deer herds or anything like that that is so often proposed if we don't do something about them. Unfortunately, there's just, there is still a part of, of certain cultures who do not want to believe that the lion is anything of, of, of use to anybody and, and therefore needs to be exterminated. So that, that, that gave a great reason and a great background of that they're not of use to us. You know, in this worldview that we are the top and the the be all and end all of everything, but what your work shows, your writings, and this is what is so critical about not only your your science background but following scientists around, is that these animals are very important into the trophic levels, which I've explained before to our listeners. <coughs> Excuse me, those levels where each um, uh, bio organism lives that creates an ecosystem of its own, an ecozone, and then the boundaries between ecozones and ecotones. But these 
these cats, these big predators um, who have managed to be so elusive and stay away from us, I'd say they're pretty smart. They, they've learned a lot about us through their history. But um, what, what is their importance and what is it that you're finding out in terms of where the wild things were, Rat Island, and now with the cougar story, how important this animal is to our ecosystem in preserving our biodiversity? Well, they, they've been a little bit harder to pin down um, in terms of what their impact is on an ecosystem. And I should, I should back up and say that all of these studies that are, that are coming out now showing the impact of top predators, I mean, these are very difficult studies to pull off. That's why there's so few of them. That's why there's so much controversy about their findings. But the, um, the mountain lion is a particularly difficult one because it's so hard to census. It's so hard to track down. It's, again, it's not like a pack of wolves where, you know, you can hear them sometimes and you can track them down a lot uh, easier. You can do it by airplane in many cases. Uh, the, the lion is, gets, its living is made by being secretive, by hiding, you know, by ambushing things. And so it stands to reason that's one of the last animals to uh, be studied so well. But that being said, there, there have been some studies uh, recently come out in Yosemite and Zion National Parks, uh, to name two, where researchers from Oregon State University, Bill Ripple, Bob Beshta, who actually made their reputation studying the impact of wolves in Yellowstone, uh, branched out from there and looked in these other parks. And lo and behold, they determined that the um, the mountain lion was a big factor in the biodiversity of certain canyons in Zion uh, National Park, and as well some of the streamside forests of Yosemite, where they actually had places that was either a difference in time, where they had mountain lions uh, before and not after, or two different similar canyons, like in Zion, where you have lions in one and no lions in the other, and they show these uh, these measurable and very significant differences in the biodiversity between the two, the idea being that uh, the cougar in places where they were having an impact on deer, the deer were eating less of the forage. The forage was supporting um, more animals, more plants, more flowers, more frogs, more lizards, more fish. I mean, everything. We're all the way down to the bottom of the food chain. Um, so these are some of the first two to come out and that directly relate to mountain lions. But the thing is that, you know, with the, the, the kind of pattern has been set now that, that we, we know that these animals can have a, a very significant impact. It's a matter of getting out there and really spending the time in the field to measure it. That's amazing that you brought up Beshta in Ripple. Um, uh, Beshta spoke at one of our fundraisers on his studies, and he actually began studying aspen trees, and William Ripple was studying um, riparian waterways and their erosion. And the studies that you're referring to were through five different national parks and understanding the loss of predators and trying to understand why the parks were looking like New York Central Park or a cleared-out parkland and didn't have a variety of age growth of trees and they understood the deer and ungulate populations were getting way out of control. So they came up with a term and you also use it, the ecology of fear. So I'd say our big predators play a big role in in that uh, aspect of our world. Could you tell us a little bit about the ecology of fear and maybe that's why we're so afraid of mountain lions also. 
Yeah, the ecology of fear. And there are some folks, and, and I will mention one in particular, who was very instrumental in laying the groundwork for Ripple and Best in Yellowstone. And that's uh, Dr. John Landre, who's uh, been studying mountain lions for decades now. He's, he's studying them from Idaho all the way down to Mexico. And now he's, he's working out of, of New York and looking at potentially bringing them back to the Adirondacks. Um, but yeah, the idea that you don't necessarily have to kill a deer to keep it from uh, mowing down the streamside forest. Uh, you can do just as good of a job and maybe even better by altering its behavior, by frightening that animal away from these, these, these oases, if you will. Now, if you think of it, if you're a deer and you know, you're living in this otherwise arid countryside, what place would you want to be sitting up there on the top of a dry knoll somewhere? Would you want to be down there in the cantina, you know, where all the goods are? And that's where the, the deer will tend to concentrate if there are no big predators there to keep them out. But they learn very quickly, um, you know, once they've been chased or, or wounded once or twice, uh, they learn very quickly that if there's, there's mountain lions or wolves about, these are not places that they want to be caught dead in. And so they, they will, they'll, there's a trade-off there. They will, they will forego a little bit of high nutrition um, to save their skins, uh, so to speak. And so this, this idea, this ecology of fear is one that uh, folks like John Landre think may be a bigger factor than just the numerical factor of, of what cougars and wolves will do to their prey populations. And you put it very well in one of your books. I'm not sure if it's an original statement or from um, another scientist by the name, I believe his name is Easton, that prey has you know, one choice or a 50-50 chance in terms of the predator-prey relationship. It's uh, 50% of the time, it's, it's going to get eaten. It has one chance to make it out alive. Uh, it's something along those lines. I didn't say it nearly as well as you did, of course, because I don't have quite your talent in, in putting all of this together. But now that takes us to um, some of what you, we were talking about prior to the show in our communications. The huge difference in following um, the cougars in, in the sense of, you'd said it earlier, there's the emotional... Uh, the feeling that we have as urbanites, bystanders, that we love looking at these animals. We would love to see a mountain lion and to know that they're out there. But we're just, we're also talking about how they're being killed and there's those people who don't want them out there. So wildlife services aside, we're not going to bring that in today, the, which is the people who are brought in to kill, um, what they call vermin or pests or wildlife. We'll, we'll be covering that plenty in upcoming issues. But uh, on your discovery and your, your investigation, you went into the heartlands, what you call the rural heartlands, and a very different attitude and perspective about our megafauna, especially our predators, exists there. And uh, is that due to the livestock industry? Is it due to the ranchers? Is it due to a continuation of myths? What did you find out? Yeah, I hate to waffle on this, but it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of, of all of those things you mentioned, but in, particularly in the agricultural community, I mean, you can understand how if their livelihoods have been based on for so long of raising a certain crop, whether it be, you know, of, of, of vegetables or whether it be of livestock, um, anything that threatens that livelihood is automatically seen as the enemy. And um, that, that is why one of the main reasons why the animals were shot out in the, in the early 1900s was, was to 
uh, was to help out the livestock industry, and it has maintained that that sort of trend. And that uh, they are some of the more powerful constituents in Western uh, politics, and therefore they are. Uh, and when their complaints uh, are heard, they are often heated in terms of we need to get rid of these animals because they're putting me out of business. Now, whether or not these you know these complaints uh, meet with facts, that's I, that's where the controversy comes in. The other part of the the issue is that. Um, part of getting to be, part of the coexistence that we found with the big predators is basically getting used to them. I mean, there's uh, there's a good example in California where they haven't hunted them now for uh, close to 40 years because they outlawed hunting in California. Well, the people don't get quite so upset when they they hear about a lion, you know, strolling on the edge of town or whatnot. But these places like in, in the Black Hills is a good example whereby. It's been a hundred years since, you know, there was lines there. They were shot out. Now they're coming back and all of a sudden this is a surprise to people. This is new to people and it's threatening. And it's basically the, the way it is for the eastern United States. We're not used to seeing these animals in our backyards and it's scary. So we have our own ecology of fear to regain. And on that little note, we're going to head into another break. So stick with us. You can uh, follow us on our website and Facebook and Twitter. And we have a new Facebook page called Our Wild World, where we post all the episodes and we can keep the discussion going. And if you have a question that you'd like to ask Will, call into the show at 866-472-5788 or send me an email at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at wildeyes.org and we'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. 
If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. We're talking with uh, author William Stolzenberg, who wrote one of the best books ever on, we could call it the Six Maths Extinction, or more deeply so, it is the consequences of what happens when we remove apex predators, megafauna, and remove different levels from our landscapes, whether they be um, the megafauna that we love and that's charismatic or the um, ones that are not quite so thrilling and emotional and cuddly. Will, in your last book, <coughs> excuse me, you've called our, ta- our current times the dark ages of nature and that you ended uh, where the wild things were uh, my original. I don't have the copy with the newest prologue and epilogue, but with the dark ages of nature that we have a decision to make. We can either stand back and say, let nature take its course, or we can decide that this is our responsibility and do something about it. In terms of letting nature take its course, we've interfered so much to this point that we have truly manipulated our landscapes. And as a science writer and um, going around and collecting all the data that you did for where the wild things were, I'm sure you have a, a very deep firsthand account of what's, of what's been um, manipulated. Can you tell us a, a little of your personal feelings of, because uh, I think you also said um, what you wrote about at the end of where the wild things were is, are things you're coming to see to pass? And it's been, what, a good 10 years since you wrote that book. So what are some of the things that you have seen come to pass that engages you, that makes you still want to fight for this and write by writing about this issue further still? Sure. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I ended that book um, with a, a cautionary note that, you know, there was a lot of noise at that point. This was, this was a decade after the wolves had been brought to Yellowstone, which is one of the great conservation achievements of, of I think, this country's history uh, after we had, you know, by the very agency that had eradicated them in the first place. Just a wonderful story. But uh, already, that by the time I was uh, finishing that book, you could see where the, the trend was already reversing, that they were, that there was a lot of a saber rattling. And in fact, there was, you know, there were plans in the surrounding states outside of the park of Yellowstone to do away with many of their wolves. And that, of course, has come to pass. They're now, uh, they're now slaughtering wolves in Idaho and, and, um, Wyoming. And, you know, they're having wolf killing derbies. And it's just, uh, you know, it's kind of the stuff that, you, you know, uh, one step up, two steps back. And that we would have thought we'd have kind of gotten over a big hump in terms of, uh, uh, America's acceptance of the wolves, but that just wasn't the case. So that was very disappointing, but almost predictable. Um, and so I, you know, the way I look at it now, I, I found that very discouraging. And I, I, I believe again, that this is not an, an issue of, of habitat. I mean, there's a lot of, I would say, don't listen to those folks who say, you know what, the time has passed. We don't have room for these animals anymore. Well, that's certainly not the case from what I'm hearing from the scientists and the ecologists in terms of the habitat that's out there. There's plenty of habitat out there to maintain these animals where they no longer are. What's missing out there is, is the societal capacity, the, uh, the, the, what they call it, the sociological carrying capacity, if you will, that, that says that, you know, we could certainly have more animals here. They have enough prey. They have enough habitat. What we don't have is a society that's willing 
to accept them. Now, I, 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 do take, I do take encouragement from the fact that uh, we found that over time when people have spent more time living amongst them, they, don't, they stop having this knee-jerk reaction that every cougar or wolf or bear needs to be killed. They, they realize, you know, they're, they're not the end all. This isn't the end of civilization. They're not going to be snatching our kids out of the bus stops, you know, and they're not going to be, you know, depleting all the last deer and then eat all of our cattle. It just doesn't work that way. It just hasn't proven to be that way from everywhere we've looked. And that's not to say, and I, I don't want it to, to, to sound very polemic about this, that's not to say that there aren't people out there who are suffering um, from from predators, but they are few and far between, and they can be helped. They can be helped, but it's not this scattershot approach, this sledgehammer approach that I think is, is really going to do us well in terms of living with the top predators. And I think that what the science is telling us that is that there's every good reason to think that we ought to think twice before we decide to exterminate the, exterminate the predators. This is an experiment whose we've never tried before, and we really don't know where we're going with this. So it, 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 it implies a bit of caution um, before, again, we willy-nilly just wipe them out. So when you say an experiment that we've never tried before, you mean living with them as opposed to just killing them out of hand? I mean, yeah, both living with them and exterminating them outright. I guess that can be taken both ways because, uh, you know, we we have wiped them out of, of large spaces, but we have, you know, we've not entirely, uh, except for, yeah, there's certain have been some extinctions, but they're, they're still with us. The possibility is still there that we can bring them back. We haven't closed the door on, on these animals. Uh, so, you know, but that would be the final step in saying, you know what? This is an experiment with, with no turning back. Once we uh, eliminate uh, the last of the of the big predators, there's no going back. Then we're going to find out whether or not we really needed them for our survival. So we're really in a place right now, which is where, between where the wild things were and the story of the cougar, that we can take as a lesson right now, uh, as you were just saying, uh, to be a bit more tolerant, the social will, the political will to allow these predators uh, to live with us and find ways to be educated, listen to the science, uh, have our science uh, and our decisions, our predator management and predator control decisions be based on science rather than vested interests, which it seems where it's been going over the past uh, century. So um, I have a question just out of the blue. I work a lot in Africa where there is a venue for wildlife support, uh, wildlife viewing. It's a big moneymaker. Tourism, that kind of thing, brings in a lot of money. What I've noticed is here in the U.S., we really don't, and maybe perhaps also in, in Europe, Western culture, we really don't have that venue to support wildlife watching um, outside of the hunting industry, the licenses and all of that, which is said to go to conservation, but I'm not quite sure that it does. So um, in terms of what you would like our listeners to hear and what they could do if they live in an area where they see mountain lions, a place like Boulder, where um, there was a great book written called Beast in the Garden uh, about mountain lions coming into town. So what that tells us is we've blurred some boundary lines. So uh, you had said earlier that mountain lions are elusive. I'd say they're the most elusive cat in the world. Have you ever seen one? I have not. 
<laughs> have you seen? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> and you seen... know, I'm in, I'm in good company, though. I must say, I've I've asked a lot of uh, scientists, ones who have not actually put collars on them or, or captured them with hounds. Um, they have not signed, seen them either, so I, I guess I consider myself in good company. Well, I know we've got a mountain lion living around my house out here because I see its tracks. There's a lot of signs going up saying wildlife, uh, mountain lions in the area, beware. So what I've learned about mountain lions is that by the time you see one, it's already well aware that you've been there, it's scoped you out, and it knows what's going on. So um, what about the issue in terms of becoming um, willing as a, as a public in a mountain lion area? And let's take Boulder or California as an example. How do we help people understand a bit further that this is not an animal that's going to come and take us out of the night. So in Boulder, there were those lions that were coming into neighborhoods and snatching some pets. What are some of the things that you think people can do to increase their willingness to live with a scary critter, an elusive critter, one that we just don't see but we know is out there, which is sort of the stuff that is, is nightmares are made of. What, what do you think? How do you, how do you think we should engage people? Well, I think you partly answered your question um, by the fact that uh, you, you mentioned most of us, particularly if you live in lion country, you've probably been watched by a, by a mountain lion or two or three um, a lot more times than you've ever seen a mountain lion. And it's, it's worth knowing that people who have actually put transmitters on these animals and watching them day to day realize that they'll hang out besides trails and just let people go by you know and so it's not this idea that oh if you just happen to run across a mountain lion and you don't see him first you're going to get snatched um that would be that would be a good to know more about these individual animals that are living on the outskirts of cities and doing very well by keeping out of trouble um the other thing is that you know we and, and my profession has been particularly guilty about this, and that is the media. They're, they're, uh, they're penchant for, for glorifying, glamorizing, or just hyping um, the, 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 the occasional and very rare attack or, or killing. I mean, it, it just it, I, I know it's a tragic event, and I think we should pay close attention to it, but I think there's a disproportionate amount of attention given to the supposed danger of these animals rather than the the wonderful natural history of these animals that we could be learning more about and so yeah uh, you know just remember that you you know that there is an element of danger i don't i don't want to uh, deny deny that but just just remember this and put it into perspective you know you can use all the metrics you want you know it's you you have a a larger uh uh, possibility of getting struck by a meteor or killed by a bee or all these sorts of things. I know that doesn't it doesn't comfort many people very much, but the fact is, I mean, it's it's just, danger is not the first thing that I would recommend people think about when we're thinking about lions. I'd say the the first thing we need to think about when we live in lion country, which seems to be growing uh, more than what we had typically thought of. It's not to the wilds of the Rocky Mountains or the deep canyons of Arizona and Mexico or um, the high mountains of, the, of Colorado. We live in lion country. They are out there. So perhaps the consideration is awareness. Um, there is a great little book out there. Sorry, Will, to mention a couple other books, but it's called Lion Sense. So when you live in lion country, there are things that you can do to be aware. Um, 
don't wear earplugs. You know, look up. Lions like to live in trees. Um, look for scat. Look for tracks. Be aware and be and understand that where we're recreating is also the backyard of wildlife, whether it be lions, bears, wolves, coyotes, whatever it is. And they have as much right, if not more, to be there uh, because they've lived there long before we started building in their backyards. Uh, so, Will, um, tell us a little more about where your, your cougar story is going. We've got a few minutes left. Uh, when can we expect this read? I'm so excited now. Um, I, when, when do I get to read it? Good question. I'd like to know that too. Um, yeah, um, I'm due to. I, I think the best bet is going to be early next year, um, 2015, to to see that come to light. And um, if if I survive that long, I think I think we'll see. That. Well, hopefully you will survive. We won't hear that you've been uh, snagged <laughs> by a lion. Lion. Oh no, I'm worried more about my. I'm worried more about just collapsing at the uh, at the keyboard. <laughs> Writing is hard. I heard it uh, compared to like uh, banging on your forehead until it bleeds. So I can understand um, the emotional filters that need to be put in place. Um, I have very few personally. When I start writing uh, or talking about these issues, it all becomes important. So I can only imagine the task ahead of you to take this massive information uh, the knowledge and the scope that you have from where the wild things were and Rat Island and put it into uh, a mystery for today about our large carnivores and our large predators and the place for them in our world. So uh, we have just a couple minutes left. Is there anything you'd like our audience to take away today? Whatever it may be. Well, you know, I, I really liked, I'd like to piggyback on what you said, the awareness thing. I mean, <laughs> Maybe it's a good idea to go out there with the idea, be aware because there could be a mountain lion behind you. But you know what? There's so many other benefits that come from just opening your eyes and your ears and being out there and just enjoying what's out there. And the more you learn about the bigger picture, about everything that's going on around you, the more the lion seems to fit in. It's not this just this other entity out there, although it is a special one. You know, it, it, it has a special place in our hearts and in our our minds, but you know, it's, it's part of the bigger picture and, a, and, a, and an integral part of the bigger picture. And just being out there, take the headphones off, you know, look around, you know, don't stare at your feet and, and enjoy yourself while you're out there. I think, I think that's, that's a message that a lot of people are missing who are hiking in, in lion country. It's not the danger. It's, it's more the, it's more the opportunity. Absolutely, and I thank you for that one because that's one I usually end my show with just about every week, that when you step out into our wild world, you are now in a place where the magnificence of our earth hits us full in the face, all our senses. So when you go out to recreate, it's not so much about fulfilling your recreational desires, it's about enjoying the the wilderness, the places that we have, those magnificent places that we still have, and where the these wild animals still live to um, enjoy them and to understand their habitat. So it looks like we're out of time today. And Will, I thank you so much for um, joining us today. And I can't wait to read the cougar story. And um, I wish you uh, a very good day. And thanks so much for being here. Many thanks, Ellie. And uh, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. 
and I look forward to keeping up uh, communicating with you and finding out what's going on. So, as always, this is Our Wild World. This is Ellie Weiss. So when you step outside today, take a look around. Take off the headphones, look around, smile, and enjoy Our Wild World. See you again next week. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.